I'm Dave Rubin and joining me today is a former Navy intelligence officer, the senior editor at Human Events and the author of the new children's book. I've got it right in my hand right now. The Island of Free Ice Cream, Jack Posobiec. Welcome to the Rubin Report. Dave, I am so excited and I just can't hide it. We're gonna talk all about the fact that there's no such thing as free ice cream today. <laughs> you know, I've known you, we met once in person, you've done the show once before, but I know you mostly through Twitter. And if you would have said to me a couple of years ago, you think Jack Posobiec is gonna write a children's book? I'm pretty sure I would not have had that on my list. But at this point, <laughs> at this point, I, <laughs> where we're at in the world, it's like pretty much anything's possible. This is proof of that, I think. Yeah, you know, when they reached out to me, so it's it's with Brave Books, and they have the whole thing up at Brave Books. So it's it's like uh, Ashley St. Clair and Elizabeth Johnston, and there's some other big names. Actually, I think they just announced it, so I can say this now that Dan Crenshaw is the uh, is going to be the next one coming out with a book. Um, nice. You know, that was something we were like, don't say it yet. We're still, you know, you know, getting the the ink is just getting dry, everything, et cetera, et cetera. But um, but yeah, we can announce that now. And what it really is is look, when you walk into and and it's a big thing for me too, right? You mentioned a couple of years ago. Well, a couple of years ago, I wasn't a father, right? I didn't have my own kids, right? I wasn't looking at life differently. I was just, it's go, 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 man. Hey, you go back even, you know, 10 years, I'm in the Navy, I'm, I'm deploying, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. You know, I'm, I'm not thinking about that stuff. I'm thinking about me, right? Yeah, right. It's, it's, it's when you're younger, your life is more centered on yourself. That's just how we are. That's, that's human nature. But, you know, as you get older, and then we do have kids and you start thinking more socially, being more socially minded, more broadly minded, more, you know, you have a more of a widespread outlook on life and you start to think, well, wait a minute, what about what's going on here? What's going on there? How are we doing this? How are we doing that? And when you walk into one of these, you know, commercial bookstores lately, Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, I, I swear it's like the first book I see, it's always this table that's set out and it's children's books. And every single one of the authors, their last names is either a Biden, Obama, a Clinton, <laughs> or a Harris, right? Mina Harris, the niece. And so I'm saying, wow, this is just, it's so politicized. And I don't remember that. I, I mean, you know, my kids' books were like, the last name was Seuss, you know, <laughs> like it's just basic, you know. You mean kids. that old racist? <laughs> right, right, you can't, right, 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 right. You can't even do that, you know, I'm, I'm learning like one fish, two fish. Um, and now we're talking about all of this really politicized stuff. And so I said, look, there's been this idea on the right that, you know, it was always like, it's always like, well, the campus crazies will just stay on campus because then they'll go to real life and they'll get mugged by reality to use the, the old Buckley in line. And then they'll stop and they'll, they'll go back to normal and everything will be fine. Right. Well, that's not what happened. The campus crazies followed into the corporate crazies, the military crazies, the academia crazies, all, all the crazies, right? Everywhere. And so that's now filtering into where? Into schools, right? Pre-K through 12. And of course, this is happening. We see CRT, et cetera, et cetera. And the books are a huge part of this. So the right has been playing this game, or even, not even just the right, but people who just believe in you know, traditional values, basic American values, totally ceded this space, just totally ceded this space and said, oh, it'll correct itself, it's self-correcting, don't worry, this isn't some big thing. Guess what, folks, it is. So that's why we decided to put this together. They reached out to me and they said, do you wanna do something? I'm like, I don't know, like, what should I write about? And they're like, what do you, they're like, what, what's something that you don't like? And I said, communism, right, you know? <laughs> um, and they said, well, we just so happens that we have a book that we think that would lend itself to that. So we kind of work together on the writing of it. And, the, and it's 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 actually got, and this is the one thing I said to them, I was like, look, 
I don't want to do one of those big preachy things where it's some story and then all of a sudden, you know, Jack Posobiec walks over and is like, well, kids, let's talk today about the virtues of the free market and Miltonian Milton Friedman and Ayn Rand. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't want to do that stuff. Right. So uh, they showed me the storyboards on it. And I said, this is actually really cool. Like, this is a book. There's characters, they're like on an island, there's a marketplace, but then, you know, some wolves show up and they say, hey, come to our island. We've got free ice cream, you know, and this guy's trying to- Not only, I'm gonna illustrate uh, the island here. There's a giant, it comes with a big map. I think I got it right here. Oh my gosh, yeah, look at this. Right, so what the way this- We'll put up a still so that I'm not so foldy here. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? So yeah, so the way it works is with the whole series, and there's 12 in the first saga. There's going to be more sagas. So it's like you get one a month. And then each one of the books corresponds with one of those circles. And the different places that are on that map are different stories. And they all kind of interlock. I mean, you can read them out of order, I think, makes sense as long as it's in the saga. But um, each story kind of feeds into the other one. It's sort of a shared, you know, like Marvel Universe kind of idea. But, you know, for kids that are reading it and, you know, my, my son's three. So I showed him some of the storyboards and he's like, oh, cool, sheep and wolves. Like, like he kind of knows that wolves are like bad and sheep are good. But he, he doesn't really have, you know, I, you know, ice and he knows ice cream is good. He gets that right. Naturally, <laughs> you know? naturally. Yeah, that one's that's that's pretty basic. Um, but he doesn't understand so much the total plots yet, but he can at least get the action of it. Right. So they go to the island of the wolves and, and guess what? Turn out spoiler alert. Right. It's not very good on the island of free ice cream. It's actually quite bad and you can't get out and there's like this Berlin wall surrounding it. So it's like a Cuba, East Germany, China kind of place. And um, anyway, so that's kind of the story, but there's a lot of action to it and it's interesting. And then you get to talk about some of these ideas. And at the end, there is a little bit more of like that whole educator piece where, you know, we're working with like homeschool groups, we're working with religious groups, we're looking with a lot of people who are just want to check out of the system and say, look, we are not on board with where you guys are going, but we need to find something to replace all of this woke junk with. And I said, look, that's that's where Brave Books comes in. So it's actually really cool, you know, and you can start to have those discussions like, okay, you know, it, it yeah, I, I wish things were free too, right? Wouldn't that be great? W- wouldn't it be awesome to live in the world of Star Trek The Next Generation where there's a replicator and you can walk over and, you know, I've got my Earl Grey tea, right? But we don't live in that world. And so maybe when somebody, and it's just a basic idea, right? That when someone offers you something that seems too good to be true, it probably is. It probably is. Now the real question is, at the libraries, will this book be recommended by the drag queens during drag queen story hour? Are they going to be handing be out this book? In. I might be able to sneak it in. I don't know. Maybe while <laughs> maybe while they're getting all the attention, we'll just be running around in the back, like throwing them all over the place. So, I mean, I'm super impressed by this because one of the things I've been talking about on the show for a while is I, I'm sort of tired of people that just talk and I want to find people that build and people that do. And that's why it's, it's very cool to me that you were like, yeah, I will write a children's book about these ideas because we got to fix all of this stuff. But I wanted to read the, uh, the mission statement by Brave. They're the publishers of the book. I thought this was pretty great. Uh, Timeless virtues for a new generation. A progressive agenda is dominating today's culture and teaching our kids all the wrong lessons. That's why we created a book series geared towards children ages four to 12. Each month we will release a new story which teaches a foundational conservative value. So you already hit on this, but do you think that's where we're at as a society at this point? That depending on what your political beliefs are, 
You're literally going to have different children's books. You're going to have different schools. You are going to have different businesses, ultimately different tech, and just you know, as far down the road as you want to run that concept. Well, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, and I know you talk about this a lot, that a, a lot of this started with relativism and the idea that there are no, you know, absolute, there's no good, there's no bad, there's just, it's, it's what was the phrase that seeped into our culture. It's not the truth, it's my truth and your truth. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, if we can't agree on basic facts and we can't agree on basic morality, then what's going to happen, right? This is exactly what happens because of that, because we took away objective morality in society, right? We took that away, we rejected it, we replaced it with what? With nothing, right? And we tried to do that for a while, but it didn't work. But then up along comes this new ideology and says, we are the new morality. We are social morality. The government has essentially replaced God in, in this sort of this like inverted hierarchy. And then so the, the, the leading purveyors of the government, the bureaucrats, the experts, you know, they are, they are the high priests and the mm -hmm. acolytes, et cetera, et cetera. And so these books then seek to impose that new morality, right, on our kids. And, and it's, it's a false reality in many ways, but also because it just doesn't line up with people's lives, it doesn't line up with reality, it doesn't line up with human nature. And so people who read this stuff at a young age are set up with false expectations for how their lives are going to be. And it, it is not going to work out. You are not going to get success. And so that's why the true test of, a, of an actual moral system is does it work? Right. Does if I follow these precepts, will I succeed? Will I find happiness? Will I find self-actualization? Right. As, as, as Thomas Aquinas wrote years ago, um, you know, these are the basic understandings of what should underpin, you know, a, a moral ideology. And yet when you look at the left, the people who follow it, they're some of the most curmudgeonly, uh, miserable, nasty people in the world. Just 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 terrible. And I, they, I feel they, they, don't, they don't look that good either. No, no, no. And there's I, a reason I, I for that. Believe it's like, um, you know, it's like in Star Wars when the emperor is using the dark side and he, uh, you know, <laughs> it, then, it then corrupts his appearance, right? And I never liked how they changed that, where they said it was just the lightning. I always liked this idea that, you know, he was using the e the force for evil, and then so that created a negative, you know, uh -huh. full side of him. Like that was sort of the what was going on in the originals. But then, you know, then they had to throw that out and say, no, no, it's just a, it's just a blaster from a lightsaber. It's like, no, oh, no, you actually had a had a really good story there. But then you you decided that wasn't as marketable as just, you know, being able to sell new toys. I know that the two of us could do like an eight hour show on Star Wars and the disaster that it's become, but we'll- I'm, I'm actually, funny enough, because we're talking kids books, I decided, um, my house is going to be Star Wars free for my kids. Only Star yeah. Wars. I, what, wait, so you wouldn't even do the originals for them and just say cut it off of that? Or, I mean, I to me, I'm big on the prequels, is, but you wouldn't even go that far. No, no, because the way I look at it now is the originals for as much as I liked them when I was growing up, they're just a gateway drug into the rest of it. <laughs> Right. And so that they hook you, they hook you like a drug dealer. Right. Right. So Lucasfilm is the good is the drug dealer. They say, hey, look at these movies. They're so great. They're so good. And then you come in and then, you you know, by the time you get to the woke awakens or whatever, the next one that comes out is you're like, wait, where am I? This is not where I started. And you even actually had Marshall Lucas, which I thought was amazing. Marshall Lucas, who was the original editor of Star Wars and Empire, the ex-wife of George Lucas, after he divorced her, he kind of writes her out of the story. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, you know the force is female, right? What about Marsha Lucas? Not so much. Um, and so she comes out and says, these aren't movies. 
these are made by people who have no idea what what Star Wars is. There's no morality. What what is this? There's like some girl who shows up and she just has force powers because, and then it's never really explained. She's a clone. Well, no, she's not a clone. She's the daughter of a clone, and that makes sense for some reason. She said that when, after she watched the prequels, she went into her car and cried because it could have been so good, and we ended up getting what we got. And so I, I my my Wait, heart. I think I don't think you mean the prequels there. I think you mean the the last three, not the prequels. You mean the last no, three, right? Phantom Menace. Oh, she cried after the prequels too. After, after seeing the Phantom Menace, yeah. Ah, oh, but that was that was at least Lucas, you know. Right, but that's the thing is that the original Star Wars movies were made by sort of a committee in a sense, right? Where. Um, you know, Lucas sort of came up with this, you know, he took elements, of course, from like Dune and Flash Gordon and these, you know, Joseph Campbell, this idea of the monomyth, um, the hero's journey, right? And so he's picking all that together and then he had some of the names, right? He had some of that stuff together, but it was really uh, Gary Kurtz and Marshall Lucas on the editing side and a bunch of people that were brought in by Fox that said, hey, George, we're going to take your story that um, he was trying to do this whole Vietnam War thing and like make it this like very like top heavy kind of like really heady material kind of deal and said, they're like, yeah, we're, we're just going to make this like good guys versus bad guys, George. So, you know, <laughs> I know you don't like that. And he was like, oh, you guys know what you're talking about. So, well, we're just going to go in a little bit of a different direction. Well, look, I assume this is going to do extremely well. So your obvious next move is it to It will just be the next Star Wars. It will recreate Star bigger, Wars. Bigger yeah. than Star Wars. Yeah, All together. All right. Moving on from Star Wars for just a second, uh, there's a lot going on in the world. Look, I thought that Biden is was there, gonna- Is there some news? It's been so boring here in DC. <laughs> oh, right, you're in DC too, we should talk about that. But look, I thought Biden Very was gonna be a disaster, so I'm really not surprised by any of this. I suppose if I'm surprised at any level, it would just be like how quickly everything became awful. But the general awful state, I'm not surprised by. Where do you grade this thing at the moment? I mean, just as we're starting this, Biden just said that 98% of us have to be vaccinated, otherwise we'll never get back to normal. As he was getting his booster shot from the vaccine that he said, if you got in the first place, that you know we'd all be okay with. Yeah, that's actually right. And and I'll I'll break a little news on here um, and I'll, I'll hold this back from, uh, you know, from Twitter and everything else before uh, before we can do this, because I actually just as you and I were preparing to get on here in the pre-show, I got a text in from someone who is a currently serving uh, U.S. official at the White House who said that statement, that number, that 98 percent came from a briefing from Dr. Fauci about a week ago that was being had. And my question is, if I would go back to that briefing, and I'll, I'll respond to them after this and say, it, was that talking about herd immunity? Because I remember the last time I heard this, herd immunity was like 75, 80% yeah. was the idea. And that also that herd immunity should include people like myself who have natural immunity because I had real COVID. I had like knocked me on my butt. I'm eating Vietnamese pho for a week and watching like bad TV shows because my, you know, I'm just like half tired, half asleep the whole time. I mean, it sucked. Like it's definitely not the flu, right? Um, but, you know, I, I, I ate pho and, and a bunch of like Sprite and I'm fine, right? I'm totally fine. It's like a year ago. And so I've still yet to have somebody come to me and make the convincing argument as to why natural immunity shouldn't count, right? And I think there's a huge portion of the population that is also wondering wondering about this. Plus, you also used to have, and Glenn Greenwald talked about this, that the ACLU used yep. to be one of the leading organizations talking against 
vaccine mandates because they actually pointed out that vac that pushing vaccine mandates from a higher level actually drives vaccine hesitancy because what is it right it's the hammer not the or it's the hammer not the carrot right it's mm -hmm. it's, it's it's like it's you're you're demanding people do it. So you're going to initiate, you know, there's going to be a certain number of people that say, well, I'm not going to do it just because you say I have to. Why should I? Right. You know, and it's of course, the U.S. government hasn't ever done anything, Dave, that would call into no, no, no. question their trustworthiness and their veracity with the American people. I've never heard of anything. I don't know what you could possibly. <laughs> no, no, I couldn't possibly. Couldn't possibly. Think of it. But are you somewhat shocked that if if we were to question any of this stuff, like I'm very aware of this on Twitter, if we're to question any, the veracity of the vaccine, whether it's working or not, actually, as you know, because I think you were the, probably the first guy I texted the day before I went off the You're grid last, say, last got, day of July. What, what was the tweet again? What was the tweet? Well, in essence, I said that vaccine mandates are coming and they don't want you to know that. <laughs> and, and I was banned from Twitter. Twitter later said it was an error, but I'm pretty sure I got that one right. Um, but then this, if this, you is talk a, this, this, this is like a month ago, right? This is hilarious. It was it was July you, 31st. Yeah. Oh, a couple months ago. OK. So, so, yeah. Give or take a month. Yeah. Um, so you tweet out that you think essentially it, it looks like vaccine mandates are coming. Banned on Twitter. Right. Right. Locked out. Was it 12 hours? 12 hours. And then I had to delete the tweet. Otherwise, they put you in. The they put you in perpetual with no answer as to when you might come back. If right, you right. refuse to delete, they put you it. in the yeah. penalty box for 12 hours. Then they take yeah. you, they make you take the tweet down. Which, which, by the way, you know, we're, we're talking about communism in the book, but this is in Mao's China. The idea of self-incrimination, right, is big. Right, they could delete the tweet for you. Right, and I always bring this up with people. They could delete the tweet for you, but as part of your struggle session, you have to admit your crime. You have to admit your thought crime. You know, you have to admit I was a capitalist. I was an exploitative landlord. I spoke out against the great leap forward, right? You have to admit that. And only if you believe to your struggle session, this is, this is the key. People don't understand. They, they use that phrase struggle session. You're not struggling against the people you're struggling against your past self. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that you're purifying yourself into the new ideology. So I, always think about that when they make you delete the tweet yourself. There's something very insidious about that and the fact that it actually is a form of making you incriminate your own thoughts and your own words. But the fact is that you said this was coming. And, and I remember the tweet, the way you had worded it was like, you think this is coming, not like, you know, I can prove this is coming. And yet, here we are talking about 98%. People are about to be kicked out of the military. There's that, you know, the great account libs of TikTok um, has, and they're not just doing libs anymore. It's really just sort of like a TikTok news kind of site now. Uh, and military members, and we covered this on, on Human Events Daily just today, that there's an E4 in the Air Force saying, look, I don't wanna take this, I'm about to be kicked out, I've signed up, I've gone through all my training, here are my qualifications, can you guys help me find a job? Right. So we're purging our military on the basis of this. Think about who we're purging, by the way, our healthcare workers. So many they're in New York state. They're talking about bringing in the National Guard to backfill healthcare workers. I'm sorry. I thought this whole thing was supposed to be help. Remember, two weeks to stop the spread. Right. Lower the curve so that we can help ICUs because of the capacity and because of bringing the burden down on healthcare workers. If this is about health, why are you firing the healthcare workers? Right, so it literally, we went, in a year and a half, we went from two weeks to flatten the curve to we're firing nurses in the name of health. 
which I don't know that we've had any sort of mass outbreak by nurses or within our military or anything like that. But but what, what do you think this really gets to in that it's not stopping? I mean, this is what I'm trying to explain to people. It doesn't matter if everyone's vaccinated or everyone stays home or everyone wears masks. The governments, and I mean governments, not just ours, but Australia, Canada, I mean, we're just watching Western governments commit Harry Carry and take down their people at the same time. That's what it seems like to me, that they, they're just loving rampaging through everyone's rights and very few of us are doing anything. This will stop when the citizenry decides it should stop. Um, you know, Russ Dohat in the New York Times, and I don't really cite the New York Times very often, but he, he, he had a pretty provocative headline on an op-ed about a week ago, and he said, what if COVID was, was 10 times more deadly, right? What if COVID was 10 times more deadly? And I'm like, well, if COVID was 10 times more deadly, then I'd probably be on board with a lot of this stuff, right? Mm. I, I think that would make sense. Uh, don't give him any good ideas, Jack. You know, no, 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 but, but, but here's, here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm getting at, because I'm not, I, I, I want to make a point, is, is that we have a situation where we know that it's not. We know that there are people, it's, it, look, it's been, what, a year and a half. I was one of the first people that said, you know, all the way back January 2020, let's add China to the travel ban. We can't allow those flights to come in. Why are we still doing this? We can see what's going on in Wuhan. We can see they're trying to shut it down. Just stop the flights. Just do it. Just stop the flights. Um, we were doing podcasts about it back then. They're like, oh, you're crazy. You're xenophobic, et cetera, et cetera. I said, no, it's about a virus that comes from there. I don't care that it is there, but it is to deal with it. Um, we know everything that's come out since then about that and the lab and what they don't want us to know, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the key thing in this is that you have a situation now where people are going to say, look, we, we can look at this as, as independent critical thinking individuals and know that, okay, people with comorbidities, you got to take care of them. People who are seniors, right? They're higher at risk. You got to take care of them. People who have um, the immunodeficiency. I, I was just down in Florida uh, meeting with a friend of mine who had gone through, um, he's had, he's just getting over throat cancer, right? He's, he's walks around double masked all the time. That makes sense, right? Because he gets that he's done. He's going to be wiped out. Like his system will not be able to handle that, right? That makes sense for his position. But the idea that we are going to allow government to have all this power, mm -hmm. they're never going to give it away. And, you know, there are some people who said, well, you know, I think this is just, it's a one-time thing. It's got, no, 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 no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Medical yeah. tyranny, medical tyranny is the future, right? This is never going to stop because medicine in our technology, our biotechnology is only getting better and better. Our government systems are only becoming more and more advanced. You're seeing the union now of government with Silicon Valley. So with technology, you tie in the biomedical aspect of that. And look, if you ever watched that movie Gattaca from 1997, mm -hmm. it's happening, man. Five years ago, I think it was it was Andrew Nichols and Ethan Hawke and Jude Law and Uma Thurman, and I think they just nailed it. You have two classes of people. You have the valids and the invalids, and we are rapidly, very rapidly running to a society like that. So what do you think is the driver of this? Uh, you're, you're a bit of an expert of, on what's going on in China. I mean, is China, did China release this and then basically convinced all of our governments to destroy themselves? Is that really the driver? Like, why is it that you, every time I open up Twitter, I have videos of Australian police officers and, and members of the army literally choking their own citizens in the name of health, or Canada closing churches, or all of the nonsense that we see here every day? 
So the the analysis, you know, with my sort of, you know, putting on my China analyst hat here for a minute, um, you know, looking at the CCP, uh, they're terrified of anything that slows down their growth. And you can look at the, their response to the contagion of or potential contagion of Evergrande, which is one of their largest real estate developers, possibly going down uh, through a very similar subprime market you know, situation as the uh, U.S. saw during the credit crunch in 2007-2008. Uh, watch the movie The Big Short, you know, mm-hmm. if, if mm-hmm. one wants to learn more about that. Uh, China, same situation, right? They overheated this, they overheated this, they fueled it with debt, fueled it with debt. Um, but what's interesting is a lot of the the money, a lot of the investments that China was using actually come from U.S. pension funds. Why? Because you have organizations like BlackRock and Blackstone that are putting U.S. dollars, U.S. money into Chinese investments, right, in China. So one interesting thing that China is doing right now in the CCP is they're bailing out these firms partially where they're only bailing out the the Chinese liability side of it. But with the, for the U.S. side, because a lot of these are joint ventures, for the U.S. side, they're letting the contagion spread. It's the exact same situation that we saw with COVID-19. And uh, somebody actually had an analysis that was pretty pretty provocative um, in relation to the Wuhan lab. And they were wondering, is it possible, because we're now seeing all these variants, right? There's all these different variants coming out and you know, it's this variant, that variant. But we don't really know where the first variant was, right? Because we don't have the data internally when it comes to China. So we just sort of arbitrarily started naming these with the Greek alphabet. And so some people have suggested that what if, you know, in, in those crazy videos coming out of China early on, like what was people knocking, you know, falling down and stuff. And so the theory was, is it possible that the original variant of this thing was actually a lot worse, right? Is it possible that that variant was a lot worse? That's what was knocking down people in Wuhan and some of the other cities, but then it was a mutation of it that got out. And so with my CCP analyst hat on, and I'm looking at Xi Jinping and I'm thinking, look, he doesn't want a slowdown in China because a one or 2% unemployment taking it in the United States. Okay. That's a couple hundred thousand people, a couple hundred thousand people there, here, there, et cetera, et cetera. You do the stimulus statements. One to 2% unemployment in China is a revolution, right? That, you know, you've got a revolution on your hands and every Chinese dynasty. And you can think of the CCP as a dynasty has gone through what's called the theory of dynastic uh, decline. And so they go through this cycle where uh, the dynasty is doing well, it's 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 risen, then the dynasty becomes corrupt, and this goes thousands of years, right? And then the dynasty becomes corrupt, they lose what's called the mandate of heaven. And one of the ideas uh, that they see as an omen or a precursor of losing the mandate of heaven is famine, pestilence, and disease. So that's why very early on, the CCP, uh, of course, the, you know, they're an atheist organization. They're not, they're not, they're not Christian. They're not believers. But one of the first things they said was this disease is a virus from hell, a demon from hell. Why did they specifically use that language? Because they were framing themselves as being on the side of heaven and the demon as being on the side of hell. That's, that's, that goes back to this sort of like this, this, this idea of, uh, the theory of dynastic decline. And so I think really what they what the thought was, was, all right, we have this thing inside China. We know that it's circulating. We know that it's mutating. We know that bad things are happening. Why should we be the only ones who take the hit? Why shouldn't the rest of the world have to take the hit too? So then do you think they're thrilled watching these Western nations do to their citizens what they're doing? I mean, that we're, we're helping them do it, right? Whatever it is that they want to do. Absolutely. I mean, you know, and it's, it's like Howard Bloom wrote in, in Lucifer Principle that, you know, this idea that Every every nation is a sort of superorganism in a sense, a collection of cells that's all connected. But we're always vying for hierarchy, and that's that's real politics, right? So, in in when I lived in China, 
one of the things that people would frequently say to me was, you know, it's not that we hate America, Jack. No, no, no. We don't hate America. We just want to be where America is. Mm -hmm. We want it to be one was it uh, one Chinese yuan equals eight U.S. dollars? We want to be in a situation where we're on top and you're actually one thing that uh, somebody said to me. And I want people to understand he didn't say this as a threat. He didn't say this offensively. It's just it was his point of view. It was what he wanted for his country. He said, I want to be in a position where someday rich Chinese families are adopting poor American children. Yeah. And that's just how they see it. Do you think there's any force in America at this point that can stand up to this? I mean, fairly certain it's not this administration. Like, if anything, we're just pushing it all along. Well, you have a situation in America right now where there's this idea that, you know, if you go back a couple of years, and I've been, I've been sort of like teasing out this, this theory for the past couple of months now, right? I call it the axis of authoritarianism, right? So if you go back to the 1990s, um, back, you know, Battle of Seattle, right? Antifa is like against globalism and against China and against all of these different things. And they actually wage war on the WTO summit there in Seattle, or Seattle's a large international port uh, because of its proximity to Asia and, and Russia, that they didn't want China into the WTO because they said their their authoritarianism will come into the United States. And, you know, it's like, you know, you know, Jack, you're like Mr. Anti-Antifa. I'm like, well, they, there's some truth. To that. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's just that Antifa got co-opted, but that's a different story. Um, but when you see what happened was there is this idea and even if you talk to some of the British interlocutors from the 1980s about the negotiations over whether or not they would adhere to the treaty about giving Hong Kong port back to China in 1997, which they eventually did, one of the leading theories of the case was that they would be able to use, they said, well, we have this, this liberal democracy and we have capitalism and we have financial capital and these, this free market system. And the more exposure that we can give communist China to our system, it will make them more open, more transparent, more liberalized, and eventually make them a democracy, right? That's what's going to happen. And this was the whole, like if you go through back to the 90s, that's what everybody talked about. When is China gonna become democratic? And you look mm -hmm. at the history of Tiananmen Square, and certainly, you know, they had a point where it seemed like it might be on the cusp of happening. My theory though, is that the opposite happened because the Chinese Communist Party went through the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre. They went through, and this is the key difference between the fall of communism in the Soviet Union and Tiananmen in China. In the Soviet Union in Moscow, the soldiers refused to fire on the citizens when they were protesting, they refused. In China, the tanks rolled. Mm -hmm. The tanks rolled. Mm -hmm. we, we, We've all seen it, right? We don't even need to go, go through any more of that. And so this created a situation where the regime was then able to stay in power. But they also realized that they couldn't just keep the people in abject poverty because this created too much of a mishmash. They were going to have this foreign direct investment that had start, been started in the 1970s. So what were they to do? So they embark on this new strategy where they have corporate power from the West and they have the authoritarian regime of the, of the CCP on top. And so what it created was a situ a new type of, of government that really hasn't been seen uh, on, on the face of the planet since, you know, the time of the great, you know, mercantile empires of the past, where they said, look, there's going to be no democracy, there's going to be pure authoritarianism, but we will allow a market to operate underneath us as long as you don't threaten our political power. This is what the CCP became. 
So American elites, when they would go over, American politicians or congressional delegations, and I would see them when I was in Shanghai, when they would come over, they would say, wow, your guy's system is really good. You don't have to worry about any of that free speech stuff. If you want a high-speed rail, maglev, you just knock down all the houses and what about the people? Get rid of them, you know, move them away. Who cares how long they live? You live here a hundred years, a thousand years, who cares? Your village is in my way. Oh, if you want to build the Three Gorges Dam, well, just flood all those towns. Who cares? Let's build a giant lake. We need this because progress is the only thing that matters to us. And so you take those two forms and put them together, it's intoxicating. It is, it is a form of absolute power, it is intoxicating. And my theory of the case is that in America, our elites, our ruling class, the 1%, whatever you want to call it. And if you actually look at it, the 1% of America, it's, uh, you know, that, that, that phrase, right? It used to be in the Occupy movement, but the Chinese Communist Party, they're about 1% of the Chinese population as well. It's actually slightly less, um, but I crunched the numbers on it. And so it really is, what you have to do is you have to look away from the elites in society. But if you take, you know, I guess you call them the deplorables or just the American people as a whole, the people that aren't making money, that aren't profiting off this system, and you put them together with, in, in China, the cognate would be the Lao Bai Xing, which means the old hundred names, you know, the sort of like the same burgeoning middle class, lower class in China, they don't have a middle class like we do. Um, you put that together and you say, hey, these guys are screwing you. The, these guys are screwing you, they're robbing you blind, right? You know, they're all getting rich. One side gets the wealth, but the wealth doesn't trickle down in China because of their authoritarian system. The one side in the US, they're getting the wealth, but all you're, all you're becoming is a consumer, right? You get your cheap Chinese TV, you get your cheap cell phone, whatever it is, but you don't get the wealth, right? You don't get any of the benefits, you don't get the jobs, you don't get the secondary tertiary industries that would come off having a primary, primary income driver. And this is why the, the vast heartland of the United States has been completely hollowed out. You know, I'm from, not the heartland, but you know, one of these sort of post-industrial cities in the Northeast, and it's, it's the exact same situation, right? This is the reason the Rust Belt exists, is because of this, and it's not elite capture, it's not Manchurian candidate, it's nothing like that, it's a merger. That's what I'm trying to get people to understand, it's actually a merger at the highest level. So what do we do? <laughs> so what do we do? Well, Good I mean, luck have, with all of that. <laughs> <laughs> you have to decouple, right? You have to you have to decouple, and you have to say you have to come to it from a perspective. And I've been I've been looking at this thing for 15 years, right? Um, I first went to China in 2006. I uh, moved there in 2007. Lived there for two years, learned the language, went the military afterwards. Primary focus was China. Um, it it. You know, it's and I'd be in these rooms in the Intel community and we'd be talking about like the South China Sea and we'd be talking about, oh, they're building these islands and they're militarizing the islands and they've got this aircraft carrier and it's going to be coming in. It's going to be doing operations. Well, what do we do? We'll, we'll send a message. Yeah, yeah. We'll send a strongly worded message. We'll we'll get the United Nations involved. Right. We'll, we'll get the three part talks, five part talks. And I, and I would be the, the guy in the back saying, you know. I mean, that's that's nice. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I don't think we're planning to go to war with China. I certainly hope we aren't. But, you know, unless you use economic leverage, isn't mm -hmm. why would they listen? It's the only thing they're going to answer to. So it, you that's what you have to break up. 
You have to break up that merger. You have to get people to understand that you are being screwed, that you are being robbed blind, and you have to then turn on the economic screws. But I don't care if it's a Republican, a Democrat, or other that does it, right? It's just what's good for the people on both sides of, of the, the world, in this case, on both sides of the Pacific. It's going to be better if you break this up, you start actually having real diplomacy and not these, these quasi-transnational organizations anymore. Right, but is there any chance, I mean, that this administration, or even if we got an American, uh, a Repu American, that was a hell of a Freudian slip, a, a Republican administration, um, is there any chance that America could actually do that? I mean, I certainly don't see it under Biden that, that we could ever, not, no, I guess we could do it, but that we would ever exert the type of influence that you're talking about. I, I think it's there. I think there's I think that economic populism is actually something that, you know, if you look at it and going back to what we were just talking about with the vaccine mandates, you're seeing a lot of this populist energy find and make strange bedfellows, right? Mm -hmm. Look city right now, this past weekend, there was an anti-vaccine march by a group of MAGA supporters in Staten Island, but then there was also an anti-vaccine protest in Brooklyn by Black Lives Matter. Yep, yep. And yet, if you listen to some of the things that they were saying, it was almost the exact same phrases. And yet, here are two groups that are supposed to be, you know, in mortal opposition to one another, and yet they're both agreed it's, that it is, and you know, sort of not a you versus we, but it's an us versus, it's an up-down thing. It's not a left-right thing. And so I think the more people start to talk about economic populism, the less that people talk about some of these more caustic politicized issues, uh, I actually think that you there are potentials for a coalition to be built across parties, across nations of people coming together and saying, look, we don't want to be ruled by a transnational you know, elite anymore. We just, we don't want it. We, we want to be countries again. We want to be citizens again. We want to have real diplomacy. Um, you're, France, you know, France is, is, is standing up right now and kind of thumbing their nose at, uh, at, at Biden. They pulled their ambassador, which is like the first time in history that I think that's ever done. And I think that's, it's, in a sense, I think it's good because as the US, you know, because the US is losing its, its position, right, is certainly losing its position as the global hegemon, if you will, then uh, it's going to require alliances and it's going to require di actual diplomacy and sitting down with people that we want to have actual help with and mutual aid. You, you, you can't have any more of this, you know, we're going to evade Iraq and you have to come along because we said so, right, or else we're going to pull this, that and that, everything. No, no, we're not going to do that anymore. It, it has to be actual, mutually assured benefit. We always talk about mutually assured destruction. Why don't we talk about mutually assured benefit? Right, so what do you think that actually looks like from an American perspective? Like I've been saying for a while, as a, as a kind of new guy to the, to the right, if, that, if we can talk about things in that left-right paradigm, but I get it, it's top-down really, or authoritarian well, versus liberty. They shoved you out. <laughs> yeah, right, right, or they shoved me out. But for this new thing, this center-right sort of economic populist thing that you're talking about, like yeah. I see myself on more of say like a libertarian side of that, then there are sort of more traditional religious conservatives. I think we're seeing I Tulsi Gabbard kind of, <laughs> yeah, but look, we're obviously on the same side in, in the big picture of things. I see someone like Tulsi Gabbard being like, well, there's nothing left for me over here. I don't know that she's fully making the move, but it seems like she's on her right, way. Right. I see that thing as, as super broad. I, I think that the, the disagreements that we might have can all be sort of 
worked on or, or like we still want to live in the same country with each other. What do you think that really looks like politically? Like, is it Trump that has to lead that thing in because he kind of was the guy that was doing it in the first place? Uh, or, or has that ship sailed? Like, what does it actually look like? Yeah, it's it. The, that's the thing with movements, right? Is that movements are great, but ideologies suck, right? So you know, movements are wonderful because they're they're explosive, they're natural, they're living organisms of their own. But then ideology gets injected, and people try to codify it, and people try to to quantify it, and package it, and sell it, and all this stuff. And that it's it and it always sort of takes away from that spirit of it. Um, you saw this in the spirit of of 2016, where it was just this 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 movement, this explosion of memes and energy and all things across the place. But I really do think that that a lot of that energy is there. It's just moved, and you know I, I do think that the Trump movement is part of it. Um, you can't. And, and you can't remove Trump from the Trump movement, right? You just you just can't. I, and I know there's so many people who are like, oh, man, I just wish he would, you know, sit out 24 and let DeSantis take his turn. I say, it's, it's probably not going to happen. It's, it's probably he's probably going to run just given. So, yeah, his, you've been saying that. And I'm, I'm hearing yeah. from every somewhat insider that I know that he's running. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, he's a kind of guy. Just just understand the psychology, right? He's the kind of guy where if, you know, if he thought and again, I'm, I'm not saying this is what happened. I'm saying just talking his perspective. If he thought he'd be beaten fair and square, he'd say, all right, and he'd, you know, he'd pack up, he'd go home. But if he thought something was stolen from him, right, if he thought something was taken away from him, then does he really seem like the kind of guy that's just going to let that happen, that's going to let that slide? Of course not. No. He's going to be the guy who's going to want to get back in and take back what he, in you know, right or wrong, views as something that is rightfully his. And I but think wh that's- Why wouldn't he think they'd just do it again though? If that's what he believes, I think that is what he believes. Like why wouldn't he think, has he done any of the legwork leg to fix the system that you know, he feels wronged him in the first place? Well, I do think you see, I do think you see some laws getting passed in, in 2022. And, and really when it, when it comes down to it, there were so many things that happened on the back of COVID that I don't think are going to be sustainable. I think that was something, and, you, and you're seeing a lot of it, you know, attempt to be continued. But I think that a lot of these sort of, you know, temporary measures that were that were held are not going to face the same type of scrutiny because you really do see people that are very upset with it. You see people saying, look, this just doesn't feel transparent. It doesn't feel like the same type of system that we've had in the past and they want to go back to it. So they're looking to their governors, uh, particularly, you know, look at Georgia, the amount of crap that they went through when they passed that law and I know I know Trump doesn't like Kemp very much but you, know, you gotta admit that was a pretty good law if you're if, you know from his perspective he, he did deliver something that you know you should support if you are you know someone who's coming from that side um, now that being said I I'm, I'm personally somebody who I say look you know talking about the French let's take the French example and what's the what do the French do they use voter ID they use voting in person unless you have a met a specific medical reason like you literally can't leave your house right other than that you're you're voting in person and you're voting with voter ID I think that's great I think that's fantastic we need to know who's voting it's it's a basic system of democracy and something also by the way where I was I was actually talking to a French MEP last um, last week he was telling me they know the answers to their election, they have the outcome within like two hours after the mm -hmm. poll closed, the entire country. And they look at the United States and say, what are you guys doing? Like, what are you doing? What is this? And so it's ridiculous. So I do think that there are methods that, you know, going back to sort of my, my, my read on Trump, that there are things that he can put in place. And certainly, you know, obviously there are certain states like, like California, like, you know, they worry about that. Like, you're not going to win California or Donald Trump. Uh, 
Um, maybe Virginia is in that bucket as well. I know some Republicans are going to be mad that I say that, but I, I don't know if Virginia is possible to win by a Republican anymore. But by the same token, I don't know that Florida is a swing state anymore. Um, you look at the past few elections, the way the population has been moving, the way a lot of people, you know, Hispanics in Florida broke for Trump, uh, broke really big for Trump. Um, not, not, I mean, I don't mean majority, but in, in a way that we haven't seen in the past. And so I, I think that there's a coalition for at least a Trump or a Trump style candidate in Florida that would be pretty solidly red. Um, so there's, there's absolutely a pathway forward for that. And, you know, like it or not, you know, it just as from, from an analyst perspective, you know, he's definitely going to run. The real question though is, and I see nobody talking about this is that if let's say Trump runs and wins, right? And just what if, what if he runs and wins, he can only do one more term, right? He can only do one more term. So he's out. So whoever he picks as vice president, then if he runs and wins, is really going to be set up, is really going to be set up to sort of be the, um, you know, be the inheritor of this movement, whatever this thing is. So when I look at this whole thing, I almost think you're going to, it's, it's almost like a passing of the baton kind of thing. And that whoever that pick is, and, and really I've been thinking about it, Tulsi was someone that I did kind of have in mind because I think that's a really interesting choice. And I think that she, um, embodies a lot of the spirit in many ways, but I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sold on, on her either though. I will say that Tulsi is somebody that, uh, I had respect for even, even years ago, 2014, I was out in Hawaii and I actually went and I was on there for a military thing. And I, um, I actually went and stopped by her office and was just talking to her staff, got to meet her. Her mom was there, you know, <laughs> got to meet her because she was just someone that even as a Democrat, because of where she was on at the time, military issues, someone that I had a lot of respect for. Are there any sane Democrats left at this point? I mean, mainstream, I don't mean the average person. Of course, there's some sane Democrats, but like in terms of the machinery that is the Democratic Party, are there any, the, the former Mies, are there any of them left over there that can be worked with? Well, I think there are, but I think it's gonna be on an issue by issue basis, right? You know, I think you, I think you do see Democrats uh, by and large, who have good outlooks when it comes to social media, right? Um, talking about actually using the government to rein in the power of social media and these these oligarchic systems. But the only problem is, of course, they what, where we disagree is that they say, well, not only should we rein in the power, but also you have to crack down on that very bad misinformation and the very bad, you know, these people are saying that Hunter Biden had a laptop and COVID might have come from a lab and they might have crazy. been doing function experiments. These crazy, crazy statements are, are saying things like Americans might be left behind in Afghanistan. Just, just wild, wild, you know, tinfoil stuff. Uh, when, of course, we all know the truth of all that. And so I think there, but I do think there's room there. I do think that's a, that's a broad movement and a broad issue topic where I think you could actually sit down and find some common ground. Um, I, I actually it, it, I hate to say it, but, you know, again, I, I actually respected the way that when Amazon was trying to come into AOC's district, AOC was like, no, just, just you're going to you're going to ruin this area. You're going to you're going to kick out all the people. You're going to destroy all of it, um, though. I do also point out that she's a hypocrite because in and she very famously is in Navy Yard in D.C. And that's exactly what mm -hmm. happened. Navy Yard, mm -hmm. that all the people came from the Hill, kicked out the families that have been living there for generations. They're now over in PG County, Maryland. And now you've got all like 
you know, the DC yuppies are based and like are all living around Navy Yard. It is the worst place in DC. I, I cannot stand it down. Like I'm a people watcher. I like people watching not in Navy Yard. Oh my gosh. I was there the other day. I, I like, I almost had like, I had to leave. I actually like the toxic, just, just energy of that place. Oh, disgusting. Where does uh, the mainstream media or whatever is left of it, where does that fit in this whole equation? You know, I did my show this morning and just once again, just showing clips of CNN saying the, you know, Stelter usually saying just the reverse of everything he said a year ago under Trump and just the endless lies and how that we're all just being shifted into our own little worlds where we just com believe completely different things. Is there anything that can be done to fix any of this? Dinosaur, that's that's the dinosaur, right? You know, they they are going to go the way. I don't know if there'll be a comet, but we'll definitely we are seeing an evolution right now in terms of media. We're seeing a massive explosion in terms of of media. Social media has given people the opportunity to use these systems to create a real democratization of information in a way that's never before been seen never before been seen. And that's, of course, why they want to shut it all down, like the, these narrative gatekeepers. And so I don't foresee, a, like, I don't know anybody under 40 who just goes home and sits down and turns on cable news the way they used to, right? I know people say, I'm going to watch this specific show, and then I'm going to catch this podcast when I'm at the gym, and I'm going to listen to this audio book, and oh, I love listening to Human Events Daily from, from POSO in, in the evening, uh, right before I go to bed on my MyPillow, which is available at MyPillow.com. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. it. had to do it. I knew it was coming. <laughs> But, but no, I, I really do think that people are going to follow less and less brands and they're going to follow more and more individuals. And I, I really think that's the way coming forward. And you look at Joe Rogan as, as sort of the uh, very much a pioneer in this sense, uh, Rush Limbaugh in many ways a pioneer in this sense, not necessarily in terms of, you know, obviously they have a lot of stuff I'm sure they disagree on, but the idea that I'm going to tune in because I don't always agree with this guy, mm -hmm. but I like him. I think he's personable. I like what he has to say. I like that he's upfront about where he's coming from. And I don't think that they're trying to mislead me. And at the end of the day, I think that's what anybody wants. And I think that corporate America and, cor and specifically corporate media has lost that. They've totally lost that sense of it. Um, you know, we did, there was this sort of hagiography of the 9-11 anchors. I don't know if you saw any of that because they just had the 20th yeah, anniversary. Yeah. Yeah. And all the anchors were, you know, and Brokaw and Jennings and and rather they were the ones that 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 walked us through that. And that's the first thing I don't really remember um, them being the ones who walked us through it. But that was like the last shining moment where you really only had three choices for your media. And now it's totally dispersed and it ain't going back. It, it, that genie ain't going back in the bottle. The toothpaste ain't going back in the tube. The bell cannot be unrung. Right. You are going to have now a bifurcated media. You're going. So. Does that lead to parallel economies? Does that lead to parallel systems? Does that lead to parallel countries? I hope not. I really, really, really hope not because I really don't want to do that. Um, so that's why I've always been trying to set, you know, basic guidelines. The New Yorker just ran a piece yesterday. Uh, yeah, yesterday. We call for sabotage and the bombing and, and blowing up pipelines. I said, look, you have to put a fault line on no doxing, right? no going after families and no violence. It's simple, no violence. You lay down some of those guardrails 
at least. So that at least, you know, if we're going to have these culture wars, right, we don't want to blow up the entire country while we're at it. So, but, but, is, but, but is that the inherent problem? I mean, I've discussed this with Tucker and a, and a bunch of other people that they actually believe you should do those things and that political violence is okay. And maybe if you have to take out a couple bloggers like they would do in Bangladesh or Pakistan, that's kind of okay. We can blow up. I mean, I, this, this headline from, it was New Yorker right. or New York? Yeah, New Yorker, right? New York. Yeah, I mean, literally, we're gonna we can blow things up. Like maybe we have to. Like th we have rules; they don't. This is a asymmetric problem. Well, see that, and that that comes down to a larger question of the rule of law, right? So, will will were, were the laws applied equally to you know? And and I'm not someone who says I, I defend what happened on January 6th, but I do like I do look at it from perspective of saying were the laws applied to the January 6th rioters the same way they were applied to the Antifa rioters of 2020, right? Mm -hmm. was, was it applied at the same level? Or to the people that attacked Trump's inauguration in 2017 in Washington, D.C., right? In many cases on some of the same streets, right, where this took place. So we can see obviously not. And the ACLU came in and the city of Washington, D.C. had to pay a $1.2 million settlement to the, the 200 Antifa that were arrested en masse because of uh, false targeting and all this other junk, this settlement with them. And so that's the problem of the system that we're in. And so what I what I try to do is I turn this around and I say, look, if, if you are on the right or if you're someone who's the victim of this, you have to prosecute. And if you can't prosecute, you have to sue and you have to stand up and you have to do it now. That's why anybody who's taken a swing at me or there's that that picture of me and the uh, the Antifa guy, I, I'm taking to court. I will testify. I will press charges every single time. If you can't be identified, then guess what? We are going to identify you. We're going to put you behind bars. If you're lying, you're screaming, you're doing, you know, definitely will bring charges against you, right? You have to use the system of law and peaceful civil disobedience, right? The same way that I see people saying like, I refuse, you know, so refuse, right? Uh, in terms of these vaccine mandates, because that's the only way that people en masse are gonna be able to say, no, we check out. What else is on your mind these days besides all of this? Oh my mind, I don't know. I've been, um, I want to write a historical fiction novel or possibly comic book series about Washington, D.C. I've been uh, <laughs> I've actually been thinking about that lately. Um, there's this there's this whole idea that Washington, D.C. has always been this like, you know, pristine capital. But there is actually like in the post-Civil War era, there's been a, there was a huge um just just seedy underbelly of Washington, but right in between where the White House is ensconced and the Capitol building. And there's, there's a canal. There used to be a canal, actually, because that was sort of the main thoroughfare in the past that connected the Potomac River to the U.S. Capitol. And so the senators, the congressmen would go back and forth. And um, so it's it's kind of where the National Mall is now. It's all, it's all you know, um, covered up now. But back in the day, that era used to be so bad. And the soldiers, the Union soldiers from the Civil War would go in there and there was it was saloons and like, uh, uh, you know, like like brothels and just just craziness. And it was so bad that people would go in there and like they would just find dead bodies floating around in this canal all the time. And so one of the things that that they started referring to the place was was Murder Bay. And uh, I just thought, man, it's it was a swamp. And then it was Murder Bay, and now it's Washington, D.C. And if people want to actually understand the history, the real history of what happens in our nation's capital, we have to actually start telling these stories. So that's that's one thing I'm looking at. Because, again, you know, you, you know, you talk about 
look, the daily stuff and the China stuff and all that, like that's, that's, that's my drive. That's doing the show. You know, human, this is the human events daily studio. We just partnered with turning point USA. We're doing this now every day. We went number one, uh, for the first two weeks that we're out it was amazing for Apple politics. And, um, it's uh, for that one. I keep it short. It's like 25 minutes. Um, I call it the bottom line up front, be good, be brief, be gone. Right. Um, and it's like something you can just share it with your normies, a couple of stories a day, but I, I really want to keep going with this cultural stuff. You can, you know, you can kind of see, I have, um, you know, I, I have a lot of passion for it. I have a lot of interest for it. And I think that ultimately certain, the daily stuff has a shelf life, right? You know, listen to one, you hear one of these things, even this conversation that you and I are having, it's, you know, maybe relevant for like a couple of weeks and then it's gone. Right. But if you have a cultural product, you have artwork, if you have something that you're putting real value into, and that is also, uh, has an exegesis of, you know, timeless values, really, then that's something that you can look back 30 years and say, you know what, it's still, there, there's a reason that we read certain books over and over. There's a reason that certain, um, you know, certain collections of books have gone down through the ages. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm going to write something like that. But, uh, you know, I do think that I do think that that stuff, long term speaking, is actually has a lot of value. I'm with you, man. Build new things, write new books. And although we will link to the book down below, I will give you a chance one more time. If you want to very cleanly and clearly sell a pillow right now, we can go out on that note. Dave, I, I don't know. You know, I know you travel a lot in your business. I know there's there's so much you do. Everybody in the world's like, I want Dave Rubin. How do I get Dave Rubin? Well, you got to travel here. You got to travel there. The only way to do all that travel is if you get the best night's sleep in That's the true. whole wide world by utilizing promo code POSO for up to 66% off at MyPillow.com. Actually, the towels just came back in and people are telling me they really love the towel packs. I don't have one yet, though. Don't tell my wife that. She said, I told her I'd order it and I haven't, uh, haven't actually done it yet. <laughs> Author, podcaster, pillow salesman. Just incredible. All right, Poso, I'll see you soon. Thanks, man. Appreciate it, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Be sure to subscribe and rate this podcast. And don't forget, you can watch my direct messages live on Blaze TV and YouTube every weekday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And of course, if you want to connect with me personally and get early access to my sit-down interviews, join rubinreport.locals.com.